Genesis chapter 39. Now, this is ambitious, I realize. We're going to cover Genesis 39, 40, and 41, and you're probably thinking we're going to be here a while. You know me. Uh, but uh, we're, going to, we're going to walk through this rather quickly. Uh, I would encourage you, this is going to be a four-part as part of our Providence series. The story of Joseph will be four sermons, and so next week we will be, uh, Lord willing, looking at uh, chapters 41, or rather 42 to 45, through 45. So read that ahead of time and come prepared. That's a little homework. You know I do like to give homework, and so read that and you will be way down the road and you won't be confused. We're going, to read, uh, we're going to read chapter 39 this morning and kind of focus our emphasis on this. But look at the, there's really three stories, three movements within the story here. And so we're going to focus our attention on 39, but also look at 40 and 41 more briefly. So let us now, let us hear now the word of the Lord as inspired by his blessed Holy Spirit. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight, in the Lord's sight, and attended him. And he made him overseer of the house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he had made himself overseer, he made him overseer in his house over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had, in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But Joseph refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am. Nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, that's part of his wife, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or be with her. You get his drift here, right? But one day... When he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to, to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I, that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. And she laid his, up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. 
But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife had spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he, that is Joseph, was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge. In other words, he didn't worry. Because the Lord was with him, with Joseph. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. If you don't underline something, underline that last phrase. Whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Let's pray together. This is the word of the Lord. His inspired, inerrant, authoritative word. God in heaven, even as we hear the thunder roll this morning, we ask that your word would thunder forth from this pulpit. And God, that when we leave here today, that we would hate sin more and love righteousness more. That God, you would make us more like Jesus, more able to resist temptation, more able to trust you and your good providence. And God, I pray that you prepare our hearts for the meal. We'll, we'll soon take the Lord's Supper. That, Lord, you would be showing us sin that we need to repent of. That you would be preparing us for that part of our worship. To take the meal and be nourished and strengthened. Not by the bread and not by the cup. But by your word, every mouth that comes from the mouth of the Lord. For man does not live by bread alone, Jesus said. And God, if there be those here who do not know you, convict them by your spirit and draw them to yourself and build your church today, God, in us and through us for your glory. In Jesus' name. I want you to think about something. This is very negative, so I'm just going to get that out of the way up front. You're going to say, well, you're going to discourage us right off the bat, so here we go. Let's get it out of the way. I want you to think about the worst day you've ever had, or maybe the worst year you've ever had. You say, boy, we had a, boy, 2020, well, that was a bear of a year. 2021, I'll be honest with you, I've not thought of so much to write home about either, and you probably haven't. But think about maybe a year, maybe a time, or maybe an incident that you, you still, to this day, you've really not gotten over in the sense that you'll never forget it. Maybe something personal happened. Maybe someone died. One of my worst days of my adult life was the day my father, 30 years ago in 1991, the day he died suddenly. You know, I loved him, very close to him, and that was a dark day. But for me, really, probably a year, 1997, I think of that year and I just go, Ugh, boy, what a, what a year that was. I was a young journalist, I worked in a newspaper, actually I was a veteran journalist by this time. Lisa and I got married, we'd been married about three years, and the, and, and the devil just, I think he just focused on us for an entire year. And our flesh reared up, and the world hated us, and it just seemed like there were many enemies. That year, I was, for the only time in my career as a journalist, and my only time in ministry, I was fired as a journalist. I was, as I look back on it, unjustly fired. We had to, we had to scramble. And all the while, unbeknownst to anybody but my wife and my mother and my pastor, I was wrestling with the call to ministry. And just to summarize, I won't go into the details, but God used that really, really terrible year to 
put me in the realm of really good theology, to put me with someone who taught me sound doctrine. He moved me somewhere where I was taught with a man who was placed to the man to become my mentor and teach me sound doctrine. And I was surrendered to ministry that year and leave the newspaper business altogether. And here I am today, all these years later, lead pastor at Christ Fellowship Baptist Church. I could never have imagined it in 1997. And as I look back, I see the hand of God's promise. I see how he orchestrated all these things, and many of them were good. In the moment, they seemed awful. The day I was fired, it was awful. The only good thing about it, I got to play golf for a month. They gave me a nice severance package. I did play golf for a month. That was kind of nice. Some days I'd like to go back to that for about a month. Don't fire me so I can. But, but you know, you get, get my, my drift. It was terrible. There's nothing much good. I mean, you know, I think we, we were growing together as a couple, which means we were having some serious growing pains. And so it's just altogether terrible. But I look back and I, that was the very year God used to change me, to transform me, to completely turn my life upside down and reorient the direction of my life. And praise God for that. But boy, in the moment, in 1997, I could barely even utter that year after those days. But it, but it, it seemed terrible. I want you to think about what God did in those, in those terrible times. All, maybe it's all these years later. You may say, well, I'm in the worst time of my life now. Well, then we're going to see what the possibilities that God, what God is doing. We won't know specifically, of course. But as I've said in, in the introductory sermon, God's providence and God's will for your life is often most clearly seen in hindsight, in retrospect, and looking back. As I look back, what was it, 24 years ago, I could never have imagined what was about to happen, and I probably wouldn't have liked it if I'd known that, but I see what God has gloriously done in my life, and through a lot of those really bad things that happened that year. First of all, it made me really sick of the newspaper business. I almost worshiped the newspaper business for the 13 years I did it. My wife will tell you, she's shaking her head over here. Boy, did he ever. I lived with his clothes for a long time because he was always gone. I did. I think I was an idolater, and God revealed that in my heart. And so what does that have to do with the story of Joseph? Well, just everything in this section we're going to look at today. Because really the theme of this section is that I think there's that, I'm going to summarize it this way, God is always with his children in the cauldron of affliction in trials and temptations of this fallen world. He's always with you, but he doesn't take you out of the cauldron of affliction. You may say, well, that doesn't encourage me much. I want to change my circumstances. Well, God doesn't promise to change your circumstances. But he does promise you himself if you are his children. And so we see that here right off the bat. Back in uh, chapter 37, we covered last week, just a quick summary. Uh, we met Joseph. Joseph was his father's favorite son. He made him a coat of many colors to signify that. That made his brothers, his siblings, really mad, his 11 brothers, and they sold. They took him. He went to check out their work. To bring a, he brought up one bad report to their father of them, and he's no doubt about to bring another bad work about their work, or bad report about their work. And they took him and his coat of many colors and threw them into a pit. They were going to kill him. They decided not to. They decided to make a profit off him. So they sold him to the band of Ishmaelite traders who came through as they were basically having a picnic with a brother in the pit. Very callous they were. And so Joseph was, first of all, in a pit, about to be murdered by his brothers, but then raised up and sold into slavery in the Ishmaelite Traders took him into Egypt, and that's very, very important in the history of redemption. Took him into Egypt. We're going to look at Exodus, the whole book of Exodus, just kind of a flyover here when we're done with Joseph, story of Joseph. One or, I'm not sure, two sermons, but just look at, and you're going to see why Egypt is so important in the history of redemption. 
the history of God's work in His people and through His people. And so we come to uh, uh, chapter 38. We won't deal with that. A very, a very odd, kind of an odd um, segue to chapter 39, an odd divergence. The story of Judah and Tamar. Judah impregnated his daughter-in-law, Tamar. And it's a very strange thing, but it has significance. We're not going to cover that. We'll maybe later come back to that. I, I, but we're going to jump to, ver- to chapter 39 because we're looking at Joseph. And what happens in verse 39? I think in verse 38 you see, you could see, may, or chapter 38 rather, you could see sexual temptation not resisted. In chapter 39, sexual temptation resisted. I think that's probably the segue. So that's a good, there, so there you have all of chapter 38 just in one sentence. Aren't you amazed that I can do that? Because you say, you preach like 1220, man. You actually, some, why can't you do that in the rest of your preaching? And I, I agree with you, and I'm really not sure why. I think it's just that God's made me. Give me the gift of long-windedness. We meet Potiphar, and Potiphar's wife, he's gone to, we, we, at the end of chapter 37, the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, who's an officer of Pharaoh, a right-hand man of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, the keeper of the prison. For Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, Joseph been brought down to Egypt. He gets back into there, summarizes that here, and he's in the house of Potiphar, and Potiphar's wife does what? She tempts him. She comes on to him. But we learn here, and we see this repeatedly here in this chapter, and we see it all through the story of Joseph, that Joseph was favored by God, and because he was favored by God, he gave him favor with man. And we like that, don't we? He was favored by God. That's very very important, and you know, our stories turn from our best day to our worst—I mean, our worst day to our best day because to a good day because God had His hand of favor on Joseph, and that is really the theme here. Verses two to five: The Lord was with Joseph. There it is, verse two, and he became because God was with him a successful man. His master saw that the Lord was with him. There it is again, and that the Lord caused. Don't miss the language. Don't miss the verb tense here. The Lord caused, who did it? The subject, Lord, who did it? Who caused it? God did. The Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight, that's Potiphar's sight, and attended him, and he made him overseer, put him over his house, and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he had made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. Boy, that was a savvy move on Potiphar's, Potiphar's part, wasn't it? God's with him. I'll put him in my house. God will prosper my house. And God did. We look back and we see God's hand of providence here, don't we? We'll see it clearly, but we'll see it in all the details. All the, you know, God's in the details. The devil's in the details. We'll really know the God's in the details. We keep saying it. We'll say this over and over. Because we want to draw our theology out of this story. And a lot of times we do. We draw our theology out of the Bible, out of His Word, and out of these stories, don't we? These aren't just moral examples. Although there is, we're going to see that here in a minute, but really it's, it's about God. <clears throat> so Potiphar's wife comes on to Joseph day after day relentlessly when he comes to do his work in the house. She wants to have an affair with Joseph, who's a handsome man by the account here. As Harry Carey said, big good-looking kid. As the old Cubs announcer said about all the players, he's a big good-looking kid. Well, that's, that's Joseph apparently. And so she tries to seduce him. But Joseph resists why does he resist? Because he's so pious and he's such a self-righteous and, and intrinsically righteous man. No, because God is with him. 
He's God's man. God's raised him up, and God has enabled him by his grace and by his power and by his strength to resist. So she trumps up charges. She accuses him. She's angry at him for resisting. So she, he runs from her. He flees from her. She keeps his coat. She tears it off of him. He leaves it behind, his cloak. And then she rats him out to her husband and said, look, he came in here to laugh at us, to make sport of us, to mock us, and he, he came in here and he tried to seduce me, and now we have his coat. We have evidence. What are you going to do about it, Potiphar? Potiphar, you know, he was angry, and I get it. If this would happen to my wife, boy, I'd be upset, wouldn't you? There's a man in this church who wouldn't be upset about this. You need to talk to me after church. I think all the men in this church would be upset. Yeah, I'd be really upset about that. So what does he do? Well, he takes Joseph and throws him into prison and probably do the same thing. If I had the power to do that, you're in prison for coming on to my wife. And of course, the charges are trumped up, right? This is not what happened. This is an abject lie. There's no truth in this. No truth at all. But God was with Joseph. He didn't give in because God was with Joseph. Charles Spurgeon said, here is Joseph's biography sketched by inspiration. God was with him. That's his biography. And that's, keep that in your head all through the story of Joseph, these next two and three quarters weeks. God is with him. But he's being falsely accused. He's thrown into prison. And I want to park here for just a minute because I think there's wonderful application for us on what is a common temptation? I mean, the Bible says a lot about sexual immorality. Why? Because God knew that sexuality would be very broken in a fallen world. And we know it to be true, don't we? We know it in the society, and we harp on that all the time. We know it in the, the rise of the LGBTQ movement and how broken and twisted all that is. But we know that from our own hearts, don't we? We know that from the fact that the porn industry, and I hate to even dignify it by calling it an industry, but it's a multi-billion dollar industry, if you will. Why? Well, because sexuality is infinitely broken, right? So we need to hear this. I mean, it's a common temptation. How do we overcome temptation? Especially in a hyper-sexualized age, well, we'd better know how. I mean, Scripture says a lot about it. One of my favorite encouraging places, 1 Corinthians 6, 18 to 20, I think we have this on our board. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. Now, don't miss this. This is why it's so important and why it's so scandalous. It's, it is categorically different than other sins. All other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from, have from God, you are not your own. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Boy, that is a sobering, sobering command, isn't it? That imperative, flee. Guys, flee. That's what the Bible says about it. Run. What did Joseph do? He ran from it. He fled. He fled. He took Paul's advice. Now, he lived before Paul. I realize that. But he fled because it is a, a, a categorically different kind of sin because of the very nature of it. I mean, think about what he's saying, what Paul's saying here. Our union with Christ is incompatible with all sin, but particularly and particularly heinous in light of our union with Christ is sexual sin. 
Because before that, he said, you're going to unite your, because who you give yourself to, that person sexually, you become united to them. Are you going to give your body to a prostitute and the Holy Spirit? The Spirit lives within you, right? The Spirit lives, and he, your body is to be the temple of the Holy Spirit because God lives within you. He's unzipped you and climbed inside you, and the power of the Spirit and the person of His Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, and now is living in you, and it's an infinite offense to give your life and your body to a prostitute through fornication. This is why sex outside marriage is strictly forbidden and is explosive. I can't tell you how many, how many men I went to seminary with who now have fallen through sexual immorality. Satan has picked them off. Even close friends. It's broken my heart. But it's also made me very wary and understanding that if not for God's grace, this is something to pick all of us. Satan is, he's loved This is good bait, right? That's why the porn industry is multi-billion dollars. There's a lot of men and a lot of Christian men looking at pornography. Probably even at the seminary. I don't have any research to back that up, but I mean, there are sinful hearts. It's like the problem in the monasteries, right? The monasteries are a great idea in theory. Problem is, there's people. There's people in the monasteries, and what they well, they bring their own, they bring their own sins or sinful hearts into the monastery. So the monastic movement didn't have any effect. It really doesn't, does it? You can cloister yourself away, but not from your heart. This is a uniquely flagrant and heinous sin against Christ in our own body. And within marriage, sexual union is not only allowed, but there's positive spiritual significance in giving us a picture of Christ's love for his church. He compares, Paul compares in, in, uh, in, uh, in, in the epistles, Christ's love for his church with, the, with our intimacy as husband and wife. And we see that, don't we? And so, so we celebrate that, but within the bonds of marriage. The scripture fittingly calls the church Christ's bride. And Paul's command here to flee is very similar to 1 Corinthians 10, 14, where he calls the Corinthians to flee from idolatry. Sexual immorality is idolatry. It's a species of idolatry. Very closely connected in Israel's history. What does, what does the Old Testament call Israel when it cheats on God repeatedly? Like in Hosea, we get a picture of what? God's unfaithful bride. It is sexual, it is spiritual idolatry. He compares it to sexual sin. You've been, you've been a prostitute. And repeatedly calls God through the prophets and Jeremiah and other places calls his people what? A whore. That got your attention. You all looked up, boy, did he say that? The Bible says it repeatedly. You're in God's unfaithful bride. You're a whore. That's the Bible's word, not my word. Not just being provocative. That's just the scripture, right? And we live in a culture that's sex craze, and so how do we stay aloof from this temptation? We'll just look at a few things here. Again, we're going to park in on this intentionally. How did Joseph do it? Well, he, one, he had clearly in his mind that truly sin is sin. In verse 9, he says, how then can I do such a wicked thing? He calls it a wicked thing. Lying with another woman, not his wife, is a wicked thing, he says. Is it clear? This is sin. This is not just something, a, a peccadillo that I will, you know, I can do and I'm stressed out and I can, you know, do this and I can relax and I'll go back to my wife and it'll be fine. God understands. No, no, no. It's wickedness. It's wickedness. In all its iterations, sexual immorality, whether it's through the LGBTQ movement, all the, what all, each one of those letters represents, or adultery, or fornication, it's wickedness. 
And Scripture invites us to call it demands. It doesn't invite, it demands that we call it what it is. How can I do such a wicked thing against God? Secondly, and we've got to see it that way. Joseph had it straight before temptation came to him that sin generally, if not always, hurts others. That was part of the argument that he's developing here in his reply to Mrs. Potiphar. He said, with me in charge, my master does not concern himself with anything in his house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, Mrs. Potiphar, because you're his wife. How then can I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? So it's going to have a, an impact. This is, this is a sin against him. And it's going to impact him. It's going to wreck his life. It's going to have implications for his life if I do this wicked thing. It's wicked and it's going to, uh, he's trusting me, it's going to break trust, it's going to ruin, it's going to wreck everything. And boy, it is hard to regain trust, isn't it, once this has been broken. That is a cautionary tale in and off itself. Guys, when we sit down and we get on the internet at 3 o'clock in the morning and we don't keep, have software, have something that's going to guard and protect you from this wickedness. Joseph also saw that sin is an offense against God. This is reminiscent of what David prayed after he committed adultery in the affair with Bathsheba and had her husband killed. Psalm 51.4, and this is a great prayer of repentance. You need to pray of repentance. You need to pray something before the Lord's Supper today. Pray this. Pray Psalm 51. I prayed Psalm 51 many, many times. Well, sin is often against other people. It's ultimately against who? Ultimately, God. We sin against Him. He is holy. We're never going to understand Christian living and the Christian life and the necessity of personal holiness until we understand the absolute holiness of God. That's why one of my great heroes, R.C. Sproul, gave his entire ministry to preaching and teaching on what? Mainly, the holiness of God. You're going to understand why sin is such a big deal in the sinfulness of sin, as the Puritans put it, unless you understand the holiness of God. Joseph understood this. He said, how can I do this wicked thing and sin against God? And David in Psalm 51, 4 said, praying to God and repenting to God and confessing to God. He said, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Every sin is an infinite offense against a holy God and that is why Jesus came. And that is what's behind the cross of Christ. That's what's behind the law, the moral law of God is the holiness of God. And the fact that every sin, every, every bit of pride, every, every evil thought, every word, every sinful word on our tongues, every sinful motive on our hearts is an infinite offense because God is holy. And Joseph understood that and we must also. But think about Joseph and David. What an illustration of two different approaches. Joseph succeeded against his temptation and what did David do? Well, David sinned, right? He didn't, Joseph avoided adultery. David gave in to adultery. And what's the difference? Well, Joseph understood, and we were going to read this, but Clay called an audible and read a wonderful passage. So I want to read James 1, just not all that passage. Verses 13 here through 15. For he shows how sin progresses from temptation, which is not sinful. The Lord was tempted, remember, externally, not internally, because he didn't have a sinful heart. But how temptation goes from temptation to sin to death. Here it is. Here's a trajectory James gives us here. 
Very pithy. I love this. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. And here it is. Verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured. Okay, there's where it starts. And Joseph is what? He's lured. You think he might have had a thought about, you know, I could do this. He thinks I'm I'm, I'm good looking, big good looking kid, you know, I could do this. So he's being lured, he's being tempted. So he is lured and enticed. She is the adulteress, she is the temptress, she's enticing him. He's lured, he's enticed by his own desire. Sinful desire that Joseph was a sinner, right? David was a sinner. Then desire, when it is conceived, and don't miss the picture of birth here, gives birth to sin. So you're tempted, and then you give in, and that's sin. You sin, right? And then what happens? When it is fully grown, when that boy grows up or that girl grows up, he or she is death. When it is fully grown, it brings forth death. Sin will kill you. Maybe not in this life, but in the next life, right? So Joseph fled. Joseph immediately said, oh, this is sovereign what it was, and he fled. David David cast a glance, saw Bathsheba. She was good-looking. She was sunbathing. I don't think she was, I think she was pretty uh, scantily clad, at least at the very least or the very most. And he kept looking, and he said, bring her here. And note that this temptation both arose, arose when Joseph was by himself with Potiphar's wife. He was alone with her. Guys, what does this say? You're going in ministry, you're in ministry. I had someone tell me a couple years ago, I think the Billy Graham rule is stupid. What is the Billy Graham rule? Well, that's saying that a minister should never be alone with another woman, not his wife. I am here to tell you I adhere 100% to that rule. I think it's wise and wonderful. And it's part of the reason why Billy Graham did not fall ever. There's no scandal, sexual scandal attached to him. And I adhere to that rule, and you know that already. And I think the person who said that's stupid needs to get right with Jesus. Joseph, Joseph was alone with her, but he fled. By God's grace, God gave him the grace. He, God's hand was on him, and he fled. David, he just kept looking. He, it was a look, it was a glance, and he called her over, and you know what happened next. He committed adultery, and to cover it up, the sin, you know, one sin begets another sin, and you try to cover it up, and there's this whole, this whole matrix of sin grew up around David, and he wound up killing Bathsheba's wife, having him murdered. He became a man from whose home, death, and the sword did not depart all the days of his life. So you see how we have to respond in the, tra- tra- the trajectory of sin. And this is true for men and women. And one of the, one of the realities that I've, I've seen in the church the last few years is the increase in women who are addicted to pornography. This used to be just a guy thing, at least from my experience in counseling, but now it's not only for guys anymore. It just shows the wiles of Satan, doesn't it? It just shows how, how crafty he is. Very crafty. Don't take him. Just He's on potted ham. I know that, but that's not the devil. That's something else. He's very, very crafty. He's smarter than you are. He knows how to, how to put the bait out there. And he does this, and, but Joseph flees. So immediately flee because you see the trajectory. You, look, you flirt with temptation. You give in to temptation, and it will kill you. The fish is caught and skinned and on the table. So now to move on, we'll move on from this, but Joseph is now in prison on false charges. This brings us to the next part of the story in verse 40. Joseph is called to interpret. We're going to see Joseph get out of this. The chain of circumstances continues to grow providentially. We continue to see God's purposes in Joseph's story linked together as this moves on. 
Joseph is unjustly arrested and now in jail and sometime later two senior royal attendants the baker and the cupbearer to the king to Pharaoh are thrown into prison with Joseph for some unnamed offense against Pharaoh and they both have dreams there's a lot of dreams here a lot of dreaming going on right and both men have dreams and Joseph is able to interpret them they say can you interpret this he can you have a cupbearer he would test the wine so in case someone poisoned it he would drink it and it would kill him instead of the king. He'd be there to pour because the king, he shouldn't be pouring his own wine, right? He shares his dream with the king and he says it's about a summarize a vine with three branches, buds, blossoms forth, and grapes grow on and ripen on the vine. And Joseph said, well, he interprets this as three vines representing three days before the cupbearer will be restored to the king. He's going to lift up your head, literally. In the Hebrew. He's going to lift you up. He's going to restore you to being his cupbearer. Whew, the baker goes, glad that's over with, right? Man. So no doubt the baker just completely relaxed and says, here we go. Well, tell me about my dream. Here was my dream. It relaxes. He's probably pretty confident that Joseph's going to have a positive interpretation, just like the cupbearers. The baker dreamed about three baskets. It's very similar, right? The three baskets on his head, containing all kinds of baked foods, and birds are eating out of the baskets. What does that mean? Well, the interpretation Joseph gave was that the three baskets symbolize three days. Good so far. Man, I'm going to be out of here in no time. Right? I'm going to be, I'm going to be baking. I'm going to be, man, I'm going to be putting some donuts on the table. When do, when do you get donuts back around here? You know that? Sorry, I totally digress. Three days, and he's going to lift up your head. From your shoulders. He's going to take you out and hang you. Can you imagine the horror, the sheer horror that would come over his face? He's going to what? Yeah, he's going to lift up your head from your shoulders. It's almost a silly way of telling him you're, you're, going, to be, you're going to be dead in three days. Wow. And what happens? Three days, the cupbearers are stored. In three days, the baker is taken out, decapitated. Hung, lifted up his head, dead and gone. And Joseph asked the cupbearer, hey, listen, I got this right. I gave you a favorable interpretation. When you come before the king, remember me. I'm in here unjustly. I've been unjustly accused. Can you remember me? And just tell him. Tell him about these dreams. Tell him what happened here. And he's going to be confident that I'm, I'm okay. I'm, I'm on his side. And get me out of here. Verse 23 says, verse in chapter 40, Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Just like the cupbearer, right? Probably drinking the wine, you know. And so he just forgets about Joseph. He has the, you know, access to the keg or whatever. And he's a little, forgets about Joseph. We're all forgetful, aren't we? So we, we understand that. I want to point out what's missing here. This has always fascinated me. Joseph is not completely, complaining against God he's in these terrible circumstances he didn't deserve this and yet there's no bitterness there's no complaining Job we're going to see Job 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 man he's the star of the show in those first two chapters it's wonderful the Lord gives Lord takes away bless me name Lord listen woman we're going to receive evil from the hand of God not good man he'd make an A plus on his theology test right man that's great but then we read the rest of the story and boy does he ever complain the friends come, and the friends like that, you don't need enemies, right? But he doesn't do very good, and then God has to come down and pin his ears back. We're going to get ahead of it. He said, well, I'll just summarize the whole book. 
So we'll but come back for that here in a few weeks. No complaining, no bitterness. I mean, surely he was tempted to grow bitter against God. I mean, he's been unjustly accused of basically trying to rape Potiphar's wife. His brothers have done this thing to him back in chapter 37. The accusations are totally contrived. They're completely false. And now he's been thrown into jail without so much as an opportunity to acquit himself. He's not even appeared before the king. What did you do? Pharaoh doesn't care. I think Joseph is a good model for us. He's obviously trusting God in the midst of these awful circumstances. He's trusting God. He's God's man. God has had his hand on him. He understands that. And if you're God's son or daughter, God has his hand on you. Right? Because he saved you by his grace. I'm getting ahead of myself, but that's, that's true. I mean, we would say, if we look at this just on the face of it, we would say, if ever there was a man who was abandoned by both God and man, surely it was Joseph. He's never going to get out of this alive if we just take the story for the bare facts, right? We'd feel poor Joseph. Bless his heart. Boy, look what God's doing to him. But Joseph doesn't say that, does he? God. And you think about that worst day and you see in hindsight and retrospect that you, know, you see God bring good. But are you trusting him today? Your life maybe has hit the fan. I mean, my last week, I'm going to be honest with you, it's not been much to write home about. But I've been studying the story of Joseph and this has comforted me and reminded me, God has this, even though appearances may not appear, or may, may not look like he has this. Remember, in God's economy, things in God's economy aren't always what they seem, and this should encourage you. They're not always what they seem. It's often the reverse of what it seems, right? Because that's how God works. We're going to chapter 41. I told you we're going to be really quick in these last two chapters, because I think we need to be. Joseph is promoted. He becomes the prime minister of Egypt. Talk about a, talk about a meteoric rise. Look at Joseph. Man. He's favored by God, and as a result, he's favored by man. He finds favor, again, after spending two years in jail for a crime. He's not guilty of two years. You just want, you want to say, you took two years off my life. You know, in the movies, they always say that. It took two years away from me, and now I'm going to get it back. Where's justice? Boy, Joseph wouldn't do very well in the woke movement, would he? Where's justice? I want justice. You don't hear that. You don't hear that at all. He's trusting God, right? And we need, and yes, I'm against injustice. Yes, I want justice, but we're never going to get it in this world perfectly, are we? But he's promoted here, and I read uh, chapter 41, verses 1 through 8. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. Now, here we go with the dreams again. Standing by the Nile, had a dream, and behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump. I like this description here. Attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the, ca- of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was only a dream. In the morning, his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret 
them to Pharaoh. No one can interpret his dreams. Ah, ah, this triggers, oh yeah, the cupbearer says, oh, I know a guy. You know, he's going he's gonna to get a curry favor here. The king, this is great. I know a man. <laughs> I know a man. I'm going to go see. You've got a man. You've got to bring him in. Joseph, this fellow I was in prison with, he can interpret your dreams. He interpreted my dream. And the, and the rest of the chapter is just, it's very repetitive. It's long, so we're not going to read it, but we're going to just summarize it here. Joseph comes. He summons Joseph. Joseph interprets his dreams. Seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. That's what the two, the two dreams mean the same thing. You said the plump, the big fat cows, and the little skinny cows, the ugly cows. I love how plain the Bible is here, by the way. We'd say, well, boy, don't we have feelings for the cows today? You know, we politically correct. shouldn't say that. That's like the plump terminology. That's a big old fat cow. That's a really skinny, ugly cow. <laughs> the Bible is just right, you know. So seven years, he said, this means, and then the, the, the blighted wheat, the stalk, and the, the healthy stalk, they're both, both mean the same thing. They, that one swallows up the other, the, the, the ugly cow swallows up the healthy cow, the blighted stalk swallows up the good stalk. That means that there's going to be seven years of plenty. It's going to be swallowed up by seven years of famine. There's coming a, fam a, a famine. We're not going to have enough food to feed everybody, in other words. So they call Joseph, Pharaoh's cupbearer, finally remembers Joseph. And I think there's an interesting detail in verse 14. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And I think, look at this. And when he had shaved and washed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. I love that. Detail, he shaved. I'm going to see the king. I want to shave and wash my clothes. No doubt this is a filthy, squalid jail, not like the ones we have today. And so he shaves and washes his clothes because in the ancient Near East, it would have been very offensive, especially in Egypt, to come, and get, come before the king with filth and with an unkempt beard. Now, there are other places that's not, in the ancient Near East, that's not true. But in Egypt, it's definitely so. There vanity, lots of vanity there, right? And at this point, I should say something about how ministers should, you know, but I won't say that, guys. So I know Joe's back there shaking his head. I just want to see him shake his head. Got to wear your best. Remember, I'm saying this is in Egypt, right? Most Egyptians were normally clean-shaven. We have that in history, and you know, other, others in the ancient Near East not. So we have a draw here, so you can relax, Joe. <laughs> it had no indoor plumbing in this, in this prison. It would have been filthy. And just think about you know, all the possibilities. Not like today. You don't have TV. You don't have cable. You don't have an you know, indoor toilet. None of these things. So this is gonna be, he's going to be nasty. So he washes himself. He shaves himself. He comes, and he interprets the dreams. He tells Pharaoh the two dreams have the same meaning. It'll be seven years of plenty. All about seven years, severe drought. Joseph makes it plain that both situations are sent from the invisible hand of God. Verse 32, chapter, uh, chapter 41. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. It's fixed by God, by His decrees. He's sovereign, He's going to do it, and it's going to happen soon. So Joseph advises Pharaoh, you need to hire a trusted man to oversee the land and gather and store food for the prosperous during the prosperous years to be rationed and sold during the seven years of drought. Verse 36, that food should, shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so the land may not perish through famine. What does Pharaoh do? Well, verse, verse 37 of chapter 41, the proposal pleased Pharaoh and all of his servants and Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom 
is the Spirit of God. Don't miss that. Big S. Can we find a man who is the Spirit of God? He's got someone in mind. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are, Joseph. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves at your command. Whoa. You talk about a, you talk about a job promotion. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. I'm still the king, but your second command. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand, this ceremony, giving the king's approval, and put it on Joseph's hand, and clothed him in the garments of fine linen, and put a gold chain about his neck from the filth of the dungeon of the prison to the gold chain, the fine linen of the king. And he made him ride in his second chariot, and they called out before him. So he gets the Cadillac and the motorcade, right? Wow. And he makes them call out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zophenath Haneah, and he gave him a marriage, he gave him a marriage to Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. So Joseph went over the land of went out over the land of Egypt. Isn't this stunning? The prisoner becomes the prime minister. God's at work in those circumstances, right? God is doing this. You're going to see what happens. We get to Exodus here at the end of the, of the, of the story of Joseph and then in over to Exodus. Just see, without Joseph, without the prison, none of this happens. Finds Joseph, in whom is the Spirit of God. Of course, the Spirit's always been at work among His people. We see many on various occasions in the Old Testament how God empowers His people for special service by giving them His Spirit. It's not coming in His fullness yet, but He gives them His Spirit. We see this in the in the putting together of the uh, the uh, building of the tabernacle and. In Exodus 32, God gives uh, those men His Spirit to do, uh, to put together, to, to knit and, and sew and build. And those are gifts from God, from the Spirit of God. Joseph is 30 years old and immediately gets to work. And it's clear that God is with him, showing him this great favor. Verse 46 to 49, chapter 41. Joseph, 30 years old, when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it, and Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Joseph gets married. The king gives him a wife. They have two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and they'll come into the story a bit later. Joseph. Joseph. What an amazing and unlikely rise to greatness. Now, is this moral this story? See, once you realize who you are, God's going to make you great. Now, there are theologies that apply that this way, I realize, and you can find those on the internet, and you can find those on your cable network. Right? 
I mean, just two chapters ago, Joseph was in a filthy prison. He's trumped up charges, but now, if we just trust God, he'll we can plant that seed of covenant blessing, right? No. Is it going to make us great? Well, yes and no. Greatness in the eye, great in the eyes of man, maybe not. Great in the eyes of God because of Christ? Yes. Yes. F.B. Meyer put it, In a single bound, Joseph has risen from the dungeon to the steps of the throne. He was once trampled upon as the off-scouring of all things, and now all Egypt is, Egypt is commanded to bow before him as he rides forth in the second chariot, prime minister of Egypt, second only to the king. So he was 17 when his brothers sold him into slavery. Only 13 years have passed between the time he was a mere shepherd boy and is now prime minister of Egypt. God was with him. What do we get when God's with us and God favors us? Well, we get taken out of the prison of this world and adopted into his family. We get earthly rewards. Yeah, there may be some of those, but those pale in comparison to the eternal rewards we get. This is what we're driving at, right? Because that's far greater. The treasure in heaven is far greater than any treasure on this earth. Yes, we do sometimes get earthly rewards. How do we get God's favor? Say, man, I want to tie into this. You're here and you say, I want to, I want to plug into this, this power source that, you know, the, the Joseph. Boy, I want, to, I want to be there. And it's easy. And it's impossible. Both at the same time. Here's why it's easy. Repent. You must repent and be reconciled to God. Trust in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, your only hope of eternal life. You say, well, okay. But I say impossible. Unless God is with you. Unless the grace of God works in your heart to make your heart new, impossible. But you must repent and believe. That's it. That's how you ta- tie it. I'm using, you know, prosperity prophets use this kind of language, you know. John MacArthur lately about this stuff. Takes us out of the prison and adopts us into his family. Brings us to the, brings us to the throne with him right as our father, the king of kings, lord of lords. I mean, does God's favor guarantee a wealthy and carefree life? Well, <laughs> I think Joseph's story tells us it certainly does not. Was his life always wealthy and carefree? No. No. It's like seminary students who think they're going to be the next John Piper. Say, you know, John Piper wasn't always John Piper. He had to go through a lot to become John Piper. God put him through a lot to become John Piper. If you don't believe me, ask him. He'll put you through a lot, right? To make you, to make you like, to make you wealthy? I, I don't know about that. But to make you like his son, yes. I had a heightened level, I had a heightened week of sanctification, I think, this past week, in the past two months. Some of you may as well. And that's what Joseph had here, right? God is with him. God is at work with him. When God is with his people, affliction cannot finally touch them. Not really. The body they may kill, but God's truth abides us. So yeah, it can kill us, but it can't kill us. Because for the Christian, it is not death to die, right? No. Live me as Christ to die is gain. Because we're in Christ. When Joseph was thrown into the pit by his brothers, but God was with him in the pit. He was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, Mrs. Potiphar, and thrown into jail. But God is with him in jail. If you're in affliction, God's in the affliction with you. In the colder of affliction, he is there. If you're going through it now, maybe it, your marriage is on the rocks, or maybe you've you got a broken relationship, or maybe you're, you're, you're facing a, uh, uh, some kind of, uh, uh, you're, you're facing stage four cancer, something you know is coming down the road. But you're a child of God. He's with you. 
He is with you. He was with Joseph in jail, and he's with Joseph in Egypt, and at the right hand of Pharaoh. With you. Yours adopted a son or daughter of affliction will not have the final word in your life, either for God causes all things to work together for good. Those who love him are called according to his purposes. That's you. Be encouraged as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper this morning. Start to meditate on this and think about this. Servers, we're going to get ready to come and serve here just momentarily, but this is Isaiah 43. My wife and I, through one of her private devotions this week, we, the Lord really brought this to our minds this week and brought such comfort to us. Isaiah 43.1. And I think Joseph knew this, and I want you to know this. But now, thus says the Lord who made you, who created you. We put it up here. O Jacob, he who formed you, and he's speaking of the people of God, O Israel, the people of God. We can say the church. We can say, O church, O people of God, he formed you. Fear not. Are you fearful today? No doubt some of you came here with fear in your heart. Fear. But God says, fear not. If you're his child, you don't need to fear. For I have redeemed you. Why? Because I've redeemed you. I bought you back. I've called you by my name. You're, you're part of my family now. I've been adopted. I've called you by name and you are mine. You're his. You're his. Fear not. And he says this. And isn't this beautiful? Isn't, aren't these words glorious? When you walk through the waters, I will be with you. Have you walked through the waters yesterday or the day before or years before or this week? You have, no doubt. When you walk through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. The chilly waters of affliction, they may be rising in your life, right? Johnny Cash saying they're 12 foot tall and rising, honey. They may be rising. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. I think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego here because who was in the furnace with them? Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is in the furnace of affliction with you, and you will not be burned. And it may not look like it. It may look like you're being burned right now, but you will not be burned if you're his children. And there is no prosperity gospel in the world can match that promise. All that stuff's going to burn my iPhone. Oh, they've got to get a new one, you know. They tell me there's a 13 out now. Uh, just away with that. This is a far greater promise. You will not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. It looks like it's going to burn me up, but it won't consume you. It will not. These are promises, beloved. Promises. And I want you to leave here today. We started out in a very discouraging place. I invited you to think about your worst day. But boy, look at this. And the point is, on that worst day, or in that worst year, in 1997, he was in the waters with me and my family, and we're here today because he wasn't. We were in the fire, but we were not burned. We didn't even smell like smoke. The flame shall not consume you. Why? For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And that's who you have. That's who you have. You have that God, that Savior, who said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You have him. 
Maybe you're, maybe you're depressed. Maybe you're, you're anxious over things about the future. You join the club where I mean, none of us knows the future. He is with you. He's with you today. He's with your future. He's got the whole world in his hands. We used to sing this when I was a little boy. Sometimes when I was fearful before I was put to bed, my parents would sing this with me. I was a bad singer then, and I'm still a bad singer, but we'd sing it. He's got the whole world in his hands, right? He is with you in the fire and the flood, and it will not overwhelm you. And I say that on the authority of his holy writ, of sacred scripture. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Be encouraged and be confident because we have, on the authority of God's word, those precious promises, and we see it in Joseph, don't we? And this is why Joseph could flee and he could trust and he could not complain. At least we have no record of complaints and not be bitter against God. Trust him. You can trust him. They who trust him holy, we love to sing, find him holy true. In 1997, God was with me. I look back at that and see his glorious hand. I see what he was doing. He's calling me out of newspaper business about to collapse. <laughs> Boy, it was that timely, right? He pulled me out of that to bring me to this. And what I'm doing right now is what I absolutely love. I love preaching this word right here. That's the passion of my life. And that's how I want to spend the rest of my life doing for you and for anyone that will listen. I've got to jump on a hickory stump and do it. I'm going to preach this word. Because this has transformed me and it's transformed you. And this is how he's in the fire with us, isn't it? It's why we need his word and why we preach it here at Christ Fellowship Baptist Church. And we don't do much else. Because it's what you need. It may not be what you want. You complain about what we don't have. Don't we, you know, we wish this and this and this. We've got the word of the living God. And he says, I will be with you when you walk through the fire. And that is precious. And if you go home today strengthened by that because of his grace, then mission accomplished. And you're set free to love other people, to serve others, and to, to live your life entirely for someone else. Because he is with you and you know that. Praise God. Joseph is going to give his life in the service of his people. His brothers who hated him are going to see great restoration and forgiveness. Nice fellowship. Do we believe this? I can stand here all day and I can talk about this, but do we believe it? As we transition to this supper, which gives us this glorious picture of what he did for us at Calvary, do we believe it? Because that's how we access this. It's through the blood of Jesus Christ, through his death and his resurrection from the dead. That is when we really begin to live a prosperous life. That is the prosperity gospel. And that is the gospel we preach. And Paul said there is no other gospel. That's it. Let's bring forth the elements. And let's take the elements. Let me pray for us first. And then we will take these elements and we'll continue. Father, we praise you for your word. And I pray this day that everyone here will be strengthened and encouraged. And God, if there be those who do not know you, today they would come to know you. Today would be the day of salvation. Because the, the waters, the rivers, the rising rivers, nine foot tall and rising, it's coming. The fires and life are coming. God, you promise that every one of your children will not be afflicted. They will not be consumed. Oh God, I pray Everyone here be strengthened. There be those that don't need today be the day of grace in their lives. That you break through their cold, dead hearts and say, let there be life and light. And they come to your house. They come to your throne and they repent and believe in Jesus Christ.
Prepare our hearts now to receive this supper. And God, we pray you'd nourish us with this meal. Strengthen us, God, now through the gospel. For your glory in Jesus' name, amen.